Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, joystick wagglers. Before we get into this episode of Under Consultation, we have a very special announcement to make. UCP Live returns on Saturday, January 14th at the bonus stage in Croydon, where we're going to be splitting into two very distinct halves. The first of which will be Ash and I going through our favorite challenges from the first seven seasons and the reboot of Games Master. There'll be clips, there'll be quips, and a little bit of jokes and probably a few gags and stuff. Knob gags. Oh, 100% there'll be knob gags, yeah. And then when we get to the second half, we are going to do something very special and potentially very, very stupid. We're going to take some of those challenges that we've talked about in the first half of the show and we are going to recreate them live on stage and if you're there there will be a chance for you to get up and compete for a very very special trophy so yes, we're going to do some live challenges and you can be in attendance for them by getting your tickets to UCP Live 2.0, links for which are in the podcast description. And not only will those tickets get you entry to UCP Live 2.0, but there is a special combo ticket that will get you entry on that day to our friends, The Heart of Gaming, a massive retro arcade full of classic coin-ops and consoles, all free to play. And for those of you who are at UCP Live 1.0, well, uh, you'll certainly know how much fun that is. We basically just played Smash Brothers for ages, then played four-player Simpsons, and it was awesome. We finished it. Tickets start from £15, and numbers are limited, so do not delay. Get your ticket today. Links for which are in the podcast description below. So, without further ado, here is this week's episode of Under Consultation.
Greetings and welcome to our deep sea domain. This is under consultation, an episode by episode podcast type situation through the UK's greatest video game challenge TV show, Games Master. I am one of your hosts, Luke Owen, and I'm so hard, it's uncanny. I have never been so grateful for the restricted view of a webcam. I am Ash versus, or am I? Technically, Luke could just be making me think that, and any moment now, I could take all my clothes off and start clucking like a chicken. Well, this episode before that. <laughs> Before we get into that, this episode aired on the 6th of February 1997, Destruction Derby 2 still tops the video game charts, as Evita also tops the UK box office for one more week, but we have a new number one at the top of the pops with Blur's Beetlebum. Oh good, Evita. Again. Just one more week of it though. Next week we got Ransom. Oh fuck off. And that will be the last movie we have for Series 6. I mean, we get to talk about it a bit later today, but we miss Mars Attacks. Series 6 has been quite mean to us on the film front, where we thought we were going to have first contact for a handful of weeks, and instead we just got 101 Dalmatians for a few weeks, then Evita forever, then Ransom for the rest. It genuinely be painful at times, because some movies you've heard us in the past, we can talk for days... And then we get Madge, and then we get Gibbons. Then just on the periphery is is Tim Burton and Danny Elfman, Jack Nicholson and Danny DeVito and Tom fucking Jones. Why are they so mean to us, Luke? Well, there's always the in-between season, Ash. We get to talk about it for a brief moment then. And we actually get to talk about it a little bit later on in this episode as well. That is true. And hey, we get to talk about Beetlebum, a song about heroin. I was reading up about this, reading some interviews that they did. It's hilarious because every single one of them was just like, man, we really thought we shouldn't release this as a single. Like it was sort of considered single suicide to release Beetlebum because it's not a single song. Like it's, it's not like a chart topper type situation. And yet this was a chart topper for Blur. And no one saw that coming because it is a dour song that's about being on heroin like Albarn describes this as a sleepy song because it is a sleepy song but it's amazing that it's number one here i was not switched on to this song at the time i was a fan of blur in general more so than oasis beetlebum did not land for me i've got a better opinion of it now i like it more now it's still not a Blur song. I'm going to go, I want to listen to some Blur. Call up Spotify. Woo! Beetlebum. Particularly as a follow-up to Country House. Like, it's a, they're two wildly different songs. It's a very different side of Blur. It's actually the band that Blur eventually do become. Like, when you get to Think Tank era of Blur, that's a whole album of Beetlebum tracks. This will always feel like an album track. Other little bits of TV news. The Family Channel relaunches on February 3rd as Challenge TV. The name's Mark. Question mark. Now, concentration. What's so special about Challenge TV? Give us a clue. Okay, let's get all clued up for some big prizes. Want to be tempted by an instant sale or go on a treasure hunt? Spellbound, you will be because it's simply irresistible. How would you like to win a car a week in February? We all know the answer to that one. Challenge TV. You've got to watch to win. Still going to this day. Still probably one of the most viewed channels in this household. There is a higher than 50% probability that when we're done recording tonight, I will go downstairs and Challenge will be on and possibly a bit of bully. Obviously, it's quite key to Games Master because... Games Master gets a bit of a second life through Challenge in the early 2000s when they rebroadcast it. However, I believe the reason why they stopped 
rebroadcasting it. Like they only showed it once. They showed, you know, all of the episodes and then only showed them once. It's because they felt the games were too dated. For Challenge TV to say that something felt too dated, I think says a whole lot about their thoughts on video games at the time. thing that annoys me with Challenge, and this is Challenge now, is they've got their little idents where you get that little da-da-dun and it shows a catchphrase from a TV show, including sometimes catchphrase. One I saw recently was just, it said, it's only a game, isn't it? And I'm like, great, you're still not showing Nightmare. Utter pricks, you've shown it once. Show it again. Don't use the catchphrases when you're not going to show the show. Stop showing us the chase all the fucking time. No one needs to see Mark LeBet that much. The guy's a douchebag. Put Nightmare back on. Fun fact, I once beat Mark LeBet at a quiz. Really? For those who don't know, the, the YouTube channel I work for used to be a TV show on Challenge. When Challenge in the late uh, 2000s showed wrestling on a Sunday night, there was a TV show that came after it called WrestleTalk TV. And then WrestleTalk TV, once the challenge deal came to end, just became the YouTube channel. And that's when I joined, although I had joined a couple of years beforehand. But we also, as a company, got hired by Challenge TV to make short challenge-based things, like quiz show things. Because, you know, some shows run short. And then rather than have like six minutes of ad breaks, they would just have like a five minute quiz show thing that would call there. And it was called Beat the Beast. The idea was we would just do a couple of like pilot versions of them. And so I was brought in as one of the contestants to go up against Labette. Yeah, I beat him in a quiz. Specifically, it was about video games. So I did have the upper hand. And my big pride and joy is that the question that i won on was based on the super mario brothers movie what was it I, it was just something simple about bob hoskins i can't quite remember the, the specifics of it but i do remember it was for the movie yeah i beat mark in a quiz so that is a little badge of honor i'll have for me although i don't think it ever made it to air in any form of capacity i know we definitely filmed it but i don't think it actually ever made it to air i bet you though it lives rent free in his head he has not been able to watch that movie to this day that in fairness is a kind of fringe benefit of being beaten by you in a quiz i would watch that film tomorrow in a heartbeat Anyway, our last bit of TV news. On February 5th, the first Wednesday edition of the National Lottery is broadcast on BBC One, introducing the second weekly draw. Because, Ash... On February the 5th, it's Wednesday... The first National Lottery midweek draw with a guaranteed jackpot of £10 million. It's you. One day I'll meet my Prince Charming. It's me! It's me! It's me! It could be you. It could be you. I still hope one day it will be. Have we got anything in the magazines we want to cover before we get into the episode? Well, Luke, the other week we had some Street Fighter 3 news, but over the page in the world of Sega, we've got Hissing Hell, potentially the greatest Saturn beat-em-up at Nier's completion. We are, of course, talking about Fighters Megamix. I thought we were talking about Fighting Vipers, but yeah, Fighters Megamix also makes sense. You utter prick. <laughs> <laughs> Listeners could probably guess what I flubbed and have edited out <laughs> by the fact that Luke didn't give enough silence between those. Oh, he's on the red wine. That's right. That's why, you saucy beggar. Anyway, we are talking about Fighters Megamix, which is a combination of Virtua Fighter 2 and Fighting Vipers, including a total of 32 characters 
11 from each game, plus a further 10 secret fighters. I mean, I love the fact we get to talk about this again, because obviously we had this as a news item in the show uh, a couple of weeks back, but I love Fighters Mega Mix because it's fucking bananas as a game. Because on paper, you're right, like, and is it right there? It's Virtual Fighter versus Fighting Vipers, but there's also a car from Daytona, and there's also a palm tree, and it's just a bonkers little weird game that I just love. And it's this wacky side of Sega that I wish they would embrace a bit more. They used to do this loads in the 90s, but I just kind of wish that, yeah, they would embrace that side a little bit more in the now. I mean, they do mention some of the characters you just mentioned in this news article because they talk about there being a survival and a team battle mode, a training mode. Options that were included in both original games will also be available, including arenas from Virtua Fighter 2 and Fighting Vipers. But more is now known about those secret characters, and they list here Janet from Virtua Cop 2. Bean and Bark from Sonic Fighters, Akira and Sarah from Virtua Fighter Kids, Rent a Hero, one of the cars from Daytona CCE, a Bean called Deku, Yura Barn and Shiva, the missing character from the first Virtua Fighter, and some proper secret characters, namely ones that Sega won't officially reveal, one of which is believed to be Yashi no Ki, the palm tree that you mentioned from the AM2 logo. Others are, no doubt, just as ridiculous. It's like, mate, you've already listed the fucking car and a palm tree and a bean. Bloody cars in the game. They do list here that the feeling of Fighters Megamix is a little different to either of the games it draws from. It plays more like PlayStation's Tekken titles than anything else. However, the moves and combos included in Megamix are far removed from anything in Namco's title, with kicks to the groin and jumping on ribs thrown in alongside some other particularly feisty attack strategies. By the time you read this, Fighters Megamix will already be available to Japanese Saturn owners, and come next month, we'll be getting our sweaty palms on a copy of the game. So keep your eyes glued to these pages, because in 30 days' time, we'll be carrying a review of what is easily shaping up to be a Tekken beater. Hmm, yeah... That, that's, a, that's a bit of a stretch, I feel. But in fairness to, to Games Master, and certainly in fa- fairness to Sega as well, while doing this podcast, I have not felt the need to go back and play Virtua Fighter 1, 2, or 3, but I have wanted to play Fighting Vipers and Fighters Megamix. So I could at least say that they are Virtua Fighter beaters in my book. Going back to a couple of weeks ago, do you think Tetsujin played Fighters Megamix? Oh yeah, 100%. Did he just line up drama school kids in Japan and go, right, you're going to have to play as the car. (laughs) I've got a taste for it now. (laughs) You are under my spell. When I click my fingers, you will make me a bacon sandwich and you will run off, get 10 of your girlfriends, 15 root vegetables and a big tub of... Welcome to Games Master. Today on the show, oh, we have got a treat for you. We have got light entertainment legend. Don't look too closely in his eyes because he's a hypnotist, Mr. Paul McKenna on the show. But we kick off tonight with an event that we like to call Some Brothers Do Avenue. I really like the intro that we get to this show. I, I like intros that play into the guests that they've got coming up. And this is another one of those. Dom is doing something while on camera and then, you know, puts his finger to his ear to be told, hey, we're live, pal. Oh, no, of course, I'm not doing anything untoward here with the mermaids. Well, no, he's saying that he wants one of the mermaids to get 10 of her best friends, 15 root vegetables and a tub of something. I'm presuming that the root vegetables are going to be like carrots and the tub of something 
will be some hummus and they'll chop the carrots into crudités and then they'll just have a lovely sit down, some carrots and hummus, maybe talk about a book, like a book club kind of thing. That's what I think is going on. For me, I thought he was gearing up for a big Sunday roast. So it was carrots, it's parsnips, it's potatoes, and he was looking for them to get a tub of duck fat or goose fat or something so that he can start prepping up a lovely little roast dinner. The bacon sandwich is actually just to give him the the energy that he needs to cook for 13 people. Ten of the mermaid's friends coming along, Luke. That's a lot of stuffing. We've got light entertainment legend Paul McKenna. <laughs> it's going to be one of those shows, isn't it? Mate, you're on the red wine, I'm sleep deprived. It's already one of those shows. It's my third glass as well. But anyway, let's get into our first challenge. What are we playing, Games Master? I've always felt that Sonic's reputation as a bit of a softy was a little unfair. After all, you can't have that many pricks and be a complete wimp. Sonic fighting champions forms the basis for today's event, which is a rather simple best of five round match between Sonic and his one-time pal, Tails. I've gathered two teams of three people to compete in the challenge. Each person will play one round before passing on to a teammate. Team members will be relying on each other, so let's hope no one lets the side down. Luke, how many pricks does Sonic have? <laughs> It's a great question. Uh, hopefully we'll get to answer this because it's probably more than six. I mean, I like the fact that we're getting this as a challenge. Like we talked about this when it was in the news, I think, handful of episodes back earlier in series six. But it's nice to get to see it as an actual challenge because, you know, one of the running themes I think we've had through series six is Sega's inability to bring Sonic into the 32-bit era. Because what Sonic in the 32-bit era is for Sega is just, we're going to put him in a fighting game. Uh, that didn't work. Oh, we'll put him in a racing game. Uh, that didn't work. We'll just port a Mega Drive game. Uh, that's not really going to work either. And then just ignoring the 32-bits until we get to the Dreamcast. So they basically just skip a generation with what is effectively a bunch of Sonic spinball games, and then we get Sonic Adventure when we get to the Dreamcast. But this is the first proper 3D Sonic, because this is full 3D, full spinny camera turning around, modelled from all angles. No pre-rendered stuff here. This is full polygonal construction Sonic the Hedgehog with all of his pricks on display. And I can say as well that this game plays better than Sonic 3D Flicky's Island. This at least feels like a fighting game, you know, because it plays like a 3D fighter and it feels like a 3D fighter as opposed to Sega taking a 2D game and just trying to put it into an isometric 3D view and it just not really melding. I don't remember playing this in the arcade, maybe once, maybe on a visit to Sega World, actually, in one of my early trips to London. But a port for the Sega Saturn was announced. And that does mean, Luke, that I can go downstairs, reach under my television and switch on the GameCube and play it on that, because the Saturn port was cancelled. Yeah, I can't imagine why they wouldn't release it on the Sega Saturn, other than they'd already given up on the Sega Saturn at this point. But it was available on the Sonic Gems collection, which came out for the aforementioned GameCube, also for the PS2. It was also re-released again in the next decade for the PS3 and the Xbox 360, which featured an online competitive mode as well as new characters. Yeah, they found basically all the characters that were in the source material and just kind of 
made it so that they weren't just these weird unlockables that people had ROM hacked into the game. They just put them in the game. And it was actually a much, it was almost felt like then it was the most complete version of it. And you weren't just playing some weird hacked version that someone had done through a forum. Probably the lowest point of Sonic the Fighters is the actual gameplay itself, which is a shame because at that point you've got Sega that are on their third Virtua Fighter game. They've also got Fighting Vipers. They've got Fighters Mega Mix coming out. And then you've got Sonic the Fighters, which is a really kind of basic fighting game. I mean, it's very cute and it's very accessible, but it is also a step back technologically. It is a step back in game mechanics from where they are with their other franchises. And I think that lost them points, both with the players and also with the press. I think you can see that in this challenge as well that it's just not the prettiest fighting game. Like, as I said, like, it still functions as a 3D fighting game better than Sonic 3D does as a, as a platformer, but it is also just a basic little fighter. There was a couple of nice little gimmicks, like when you hit people, they drop rings, and you can pick rings back up to get little bits of health back, so they've kind of kept that Sonic mechanic in there, which is a really, really nice touch. I also like the fact that the rings denote energy as well in terms of how much damage you have dealt. So if you just do a light punch, you just lose one ring. Or if you don't do a lot of damage, just one ring. But if you do a big combo, loads of rings fall out because that is the amount of health that they have lost. Unlike, you know, if you just watch it at a health bar on Street Fighter or something, you're just watching them slightly diminish down. This has actually got like a physical representation to tell you how much damage you have done with that uh, flurry of moves. They also brought in the four shields, kind of like the barriers as a blocking mechanic. That was entirely practical because when they took the traditional Sonic designs and applied them to a 3D fighting game, they did realise their arms are quite stumpy and therefore blocking just looks wrong. And if you look at actually a lot of the attacks that are used in these fights, it's kicks. It's mostly kicks and spin attacks, but mostly kicks because this is a real Season 1, Season 2 fighting game challenge. With Season 6 graphics. We mentioned earlier there was meant to be a Saturn port. It was cancelled. It was technically meant to be out by the time this episode would have aired. It was going to be for late 1996, just a few months after the initial arcade release. At the E3 show in 1996, Sega were demoing a new set of development tools for the Sega Saturn, something that I would imagine they were hoping to use to say, look, it's easy to develop for now. And an early version of Sonic the Fighters was shown as an example of how easy this was to develop because it was being developed alongside the arcade version. And then rumours followed that Sonic the Fighters would be released for the Saturn in Japan mid-year, North America a couple of months later, and then it just disappeared. And the reason for it is exactly why a lot of 3D games were abandoned for the Sega Saturn. They just couldn't reproduce the arcade experience, particularly with something like Sonic the Fighters, where you're not just modelling the characters in the arenas, but all those rings. They're all 3D objects being thrown around all over the place, and the Saturn couldn't cope. I'm glad that this is just more of an... I mean, apart from obviously the port it gets later, it's just an arcade thing at the time. I think it makes you feel a bit more special. The challenge is simple enough. Best of five rounds match between Sonic and Tails. Yeah, it's an odd little setup that we have here because it is five rounds. It's the best of five rounds, but we have three players on each team, which means that at the most, two players from each team will get to play two rounds and only one of them will get to play one round if it goes to the full five, which, spoilers, it does. 
I, I mean, I can't see any other way around it. Otherwise, you would just have to have one player play three rounds. It's a fun little setup, but it also just it doesn't quite work numerically. I think this is probably the best of a bad situation, and it makes for a fun and quite different challenge because two teams of three brothers apiece. Okay, all the six of our contestants for this are West Ham fans, so if they've got a home game tonight, that's half the crowd gone. Please welcome uh, the Gordons and the McCormacks. You come and stand there, we cow. Right, Lewis, Craig, welcome to the show, we Dino. Now, first of all, Daniel Gordon, tell us a bit about yourself and your brothers. Yeah, well, we were like, like football and playing computer games like Richard Fire. He likes all the comics and the X-Men and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, he just like, likes the computers and mucking about. Who is going to be the weakest one in your family? It's a kind of family against family. Who are you worried about? <sighs> <Don't> <laughs> You're worried about Daryl, yeah. right? Is he the worst games player out of you? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> what do you feel about that, Daryl? He's, he's the worst and the best. Okay. Well, you're already fighting amongst yourselves. It's a, it's a good start. Okay, let's move on to McCall. Max Lewis, tell us a bit about yourself and your brothers. Well, uh, I'm Lewis. This is Craig and this is Dean. We all support West Ham. Um, Craig likes food. <laughs> <laughs> and Dean likes this girl in his class called Grace Wallace. <laughs> Do you? What's, what's nice? What do you like about Grace? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. It's just one of those loves like that. It just comes inside your head and you can't really explain it. Would you like to go out on a date with Grace? No. No, you wouldn't. You don't like her at all? Yeah, no. but um, I just wouldn't want to go. You wouldn't want to go with her? You want to wait. You want to leave her a couple of years. Softly, softly catchy monkey. Take it from me, Dean. That's the best way to go. Yeah, we have the Gordons and we have the McCormacks. And I really like the Gordons because they're all wearing the same Umbro jumper. A real mum trait of the 1990s is just to buy all of your kids the exact same clothes. That way it's easy to dress them in the morning. And I really like the McCormacks because they're all wearing shirts from a Littlewoods catalogue. All various different shades of check. A trio of lumberjacks in training. We go to the Gordons first and, you know, oh, we all like football. We all like video games. However, the middle child, Daryl, he likes comic books, the X-Men and all this sort of stuff. And he even says he's going to be the weak link of our family. And spoilers, he's right. I mean, Daryl does not believe that. Daryl says that Daniel is the worst and Dom's like, oh, great. They're already fighting amongst themselves. This is going to be even better than that kid who wanted the girl to get off his doorstep. My job's made easy. Spoilers for you, poor Daryl. Your older brother was right on this one. But meanwhile, over on the McCormack side of things, with the casual wear, Lewis introduces himself, Craig and Dean. They support West Ham, which throws back to the joke Don made when he introduced them. And Craig likes... food? Big load of piped-in laughter for the food line, because there is a real pause. You know, a, a pause so long that you thought an emergency broadcast was going to kick in. And Dean, little Dean, he likes this girl in his class called Grace. And Lewis, for dropping that fact, if you watch, gets elbowed right in the bollocks. <laughs> it's all very, very sweet. It feels very series one and two because it's smaller kids, but it feels series six because it is, you know, things like this about, oh yeah, no, he likes this girl in class called Grace. And Dom is like on that, like a shark to be like, oh, do you really, do you want to like, do you want to date her? Do you want to go on a date with her and things like that? To embarrass this small child and just get him to just say something on television that, I mean, I don't know if Grace is ever going to see this, but it's just like, I like her. I just don't want to date her. It's all so, so sweet. 
Dom's like, no, you're right. Take take the advice from me. Wait a couple of years. Softly, softly, catchy monkey. I think this would have been the first time in my life I heard the expression softly, softly, catchy monkey. But it is an expression that has stuck with me to this day. So when that came up while watching this episode for this podcast, popped huge. Popped even more than you did for the Umbro shirts. And also, you know, Dom is right. You do wait. That's why it worked out so well for him and Wigfield. Scud Race is the latest arcade driving game from Sega. And it comes with the usual options for different tracks and cars. But more importantly, it's the first title since Virtua Fighter 3 to feature Sega's Model 3 technology. Look out for it in arcades later on in the year. Although Sega have assured us they'll be giving it a new name for its British release. Just as well, really. Our first news item here is about Scud Race. Uh, and Dom is right at the end of this when he said it will have a new name because it's called Super GT in North America. Uh, and that is basically because the word Scud evoked memories of the Gulf War and Scud missiles. They were like, nope, let's just give it a really generic, boring name of Super GT. Over here in Europe, no such changes were made. We still got Scud Race. As we were saying as well about Sonic the Fighters, you'll never guess what. There was a planned Saturn port for this. And it didn't come out, so they instead they announced it for the Dreamcast. And then that one didn't come out either. It is a rarity in that it is a Sega racing game that, as far as I know, has never been officially ported to anything. Although, obviously, emulation, yada, yada, yada. But this is a Model 3 hardware game. So when we were talking about Virtua Fighter 3 a few weeks back with Mike, that was on the Sega hardware Model 3. This was actually meant to be the first game to come out showing off that new technology. But things got mixed around. Sega's marketing department went, well, I mean, it's good, but Virtua Fighter's been quite a lucrative cash cow for us these past few years. We should push the third one of those. We're not introducing any controversial game mechanics that may upset our core fan base. Oh, no. I think it's a really smart move to show off Model 3 stuff with Virtua Fighter 3 first. Like, I think that, just, that, that to me is just a very sensible thing to do. And this footage they've got here, this is like hot off the press footage because this only debuted on the 21st of January in London. Like that was the, its first worldwide showing. That's really cool. This is proper breaking news. It's not quite Sega Saturn in some guy's living room level breaking news, but it's still fairly high up there. I don't think I've ever played Scud Race. Never in my life. And that's probably because it, I, there's never been a port of it. So I've never played it at all. And I think probably my only knowledge of this game would have been through watching this episode of Games Master when it first aired in February 1997 and then re-watching it for this episode. Like, I probably have not thought of this game between those two dates. I, I mentioned earlier about the wackiness of Sega and how I sort of miss that 90s madness that, that Sega once had. That's kind of evident here because they release an update for the game a bit later on in 97 called Scud Race Plus. You know, it's the same game, but they also add in reverse track options. So far, so standard. However, they also added in something called the Super Beginner Course that was just a giant oval, a very, very simple track, but it was set in a giant scale children's playhouse where you could even race as a tank, an AM2 crew bus, a rocket car, or a cat. I mean, I'm immediately drawn to racing as a cat. Me too. It's just the wacky nonsense that I wish, like, Sega would take a bit more, like, chances on things like this. Like, this is a small period of time where Sega just did nonsense like this. 
and I miss that nonsense. Mars Attacks is the new movie from Maverick director Tim Burton. Starring Jack Nicholson, Danny DeVito and a host of other big names, the film is to Independence Day what The Simpsons is to EastEnders. I've seen it. Do so yourself, because it's fab. Out on February 28th. But our next item here, we mentioned it slightly earlier, but it is Mars Attacks, because Dom has seen it and he thinks it's fab, so you should all go and see it too. And... I did. I did go to the pictures to see Mars Attacks, even though I was actually underage. In February 1997, I went with our Chris, my cousin. He took me and my cousin Danny to go and see this. So we'd have both been 11, and our Chris snuck... Well, didn't sneak us in, but he just bought the three of us tickets to go and see it. I was Mars Attacks mad. I bloody loved this film. I loved the trading cards that it was based on. I loved the tie-in comic books. I loved the action figures they did. I've still got the Art of Mars Attacks book downstairs, the one that goes with the film that includes all of Tim Burton's illustrations, pictures of the maquettes, because originally this movie was going to be Ray Harryhausen-style stop motion, and it was going to be really expensive. And then ILM did the CGI tests, and they went, oh, oh, this is actually quite good. And that's kind of how we ended up with what we did. Everything about this movie, it's the anti-independence day. The mirror opposite of this big, po-faced, serious, hoorah, we're America, we're going to beat these guys. Oh, it's a good old-fashioned boy. He's going to sacrifice himself to Mars attacks where almost everyone is self-serving or an idiot or a self-serving idiot or Tom Jones. Eventually, the Martians are defeated by a waster, his gran, and some quite questionable music. Spoilers for Mars Attacks. I could not get over the movie when I saw it in the pictures. Well, I got it when it came out on VHS, which actually might have been Christmas 1997. It was an enormous box because not only did it have a VHS, it had a Mars Attacks t-shirt in it as well. Mm. And it was just a black t-shirt with the logo in red, but I loved that t-shirt because I was super into Mars Attacks. Like you, like I love the trading cards, and I think the movie is very evocative of those trading cards. I've got a book upstairs that is basically just a collection of all of the trading cards, the original run and then the re-release runs that they mm. did, something like with the sequels and stuff. I just love that artwork. I was, you know, I was posting on Twitter just a few months back about how much I love the artwork of Mars Attacks. And what I'd really love is to get some big print versions of some of those trading cards, because I just think they're gorgeous and stunning. Gruesome as all get out. I'm not the biggest Tim Burton fan in the world, but I think he really gets the style of Mars Attacks. It's not a very Tim Burton movie when you kind of think of Tim Burton's output up until this point. But he does get the idea behind Mars Attacks. I think he gets macabre humour. You know, as goofy as Mars Attacks is at points, it is quite gruesome. Like, it's not bloody, but there is a lot of death. Oh, there's so much death in this movie. Like, to a stunning degree, there's a lot of death. But they get away with it because it's done with humour. I mean, the Martians are dickheads. Inherently evil. They have no redeeming qualities. They will transplant a human's head onto her dog because why not it's a bit funny they will inhale the energy of a nuclear explosion like it's a helium balloon and they will shoot doves out of the air they are essentially alien gremlins they have the same character profile as the gremlins in joe dante's gremlins and especially actually gremlins too because of the added goofy quota and something about this just resonates 
And clearly people were attracted to this either because of the script, because of the story, because of the money, because of Tim Burton, because that full cast, Jack Nicholson, twice. Glenn Close, Annette Bening, Pierce Brosnan, Danny DeVito, Martin Short, Sarah Jessica Parker, Michael J. Fox, Rod Steiger, Tom Jones, Lucas Haas, Pam Greer, Natalie Portman, Jim Brown, Jack Black, Lisa Marie, and Sylvia Sidney in her final film role before she passed away. Holy shit! That is a cast. I think it's Jack Black's first proper role as well. Like, he's been in Biodome, actually, up until this point, with Kyle Gass as Tenacious D. But I think this was, like, his first proper role where he is credited on screen as you know jack black is in this movie i feel that burton went out of his way to make it an ensemble cast because that's the feeling that he wanted to give this movie they're like i can't believe this every scene that's in this movie has got an actor like oh wow they're in this movie like the opening credits are so long because it's just listing everyone who's in this movie. And as the huge Back to the Future fan I was, but such a kick out of Michael J. Fox being in the movie. Like, that was the thing I was most excited for. It's a shame that he's not in the movie for very long, but that was the thing I was most excited about. He's kind of a douchebag in the movie. Awful. <laughs> about 90% of the characters are assholes. All the people who aren't assholes are the ones that survive till the end. Spoilers, Tom Jones survives. That's not unusual definitely going to be one of those episodes isn't it <laughs> this whole kind of all a-lister cast it's very evocative of big disaster movies the poseidon adventure it was that idea of you had that big disaster movie and some people would live and some people would die and you'd never be entirely sure who it was and in the case of mars attacks barb tom jones it's actually the the non-a-listers or rather the non-big known names and i say that despite the fact that Sylvia Sidney is like a fairly big legendary name, but like the, the kind of the marquee names they were using to advertise, apart from Tom Jones, did not survive to the end of the movie at all. I love the, the Independence Day thing, because you mentioned it earlier. Dom even mentions it here, says, you know, this is to Independence Day what The Simpsons is to EastEnders. And in his book, Burton on Burton, which was edited by Mark Salisbury, he said, it was just a coincidence. Nobody told me about it in reference to Independence Day. I was surprised how close it was, but then it's a pretty basic genre, I guess. Independence Day was different in tone. It was different in everything. It almost seemed like we had done a kind of mad magazine version of Independence Day. I completely agree. And I just think it's because ID4 was so close to this release, it almost felt like it had been done on purpose. But like according to Burton, it was just a big coincidence. They'd been developing this film since 1993. So there had been quite a long development process. And because differing studios, they wouldn't necessarily know. One last thing, there is another notable name attached to it, but you don't see him on screen. The Martian translator voice. When they get the translator machine where they feed don't the... Don't run, ah, we ah, are ah, your ah, friends. ...was voiced by Roger L. Jackson, better known as the voice of Ghostface in the Scream franchise, and he actually used his role in Mars Attacks to help him get the audition for Scream. I love that. I love Mars Attacks. I've still got my original DVD of Mars Attacks, how old is that DVD? It's in a cardboard case. Do you remember the cardboard case? Has it got a little snap thing to it? The Warner Brothers snap things? Yeah. The, the second question, how old it is, do you have to flip the disc over to finish it? No, it is a single cider. Tim Burton, for the most part, does not do big special editions of his movies. Like the Batman films have got nice releases. I've got the 4K box set up there and they've got some great special features. I want a loaded. We're what, we're three years away? from the anniversary of Mars Attacks? Three, four years? Four years, yeah. Assuming 
that we don't all die in some sort of horrific global accident or we don't just run out of power and assuming physical media still exists i would so so love a 30th anniversary blu-ray 4k 8k whatever just give us some of that test footage give us all that behind the scenes stuff give us a rare commentary track doesn't even have to be from tim burton get the surviving actors in get them to have a bit of a giggle if he's still around, get Jack Nicholson in. He gets to get killed twice in that movie. I want to go watch Mars Attacks now. I am so angry it's not a number one for us because this film is so much fun. I haven't seen it in a dog's age as well. I used to burn through that VHS tape back when I was a kid, but I haven't seen the film in a dog's age. They're making the international sign of the donut. <laughs> I can't quite remember what it was called, but it was basically like a science fiction exhibition. Me and my wife were living in London at the time, and we were watching Sunday Brunch, and there was just this thing on being like, oh, and currently in London there's this sci-fi exhibition thing. I was like, oh, let's go check that out. That'd be a fun little thing to do on a Sunday. And they had first edition versions of the trading cards, and all of them basically just all laid out next to each other, so you could just do the whole story card by card. It was really, really cool, because I've never seen all of them like that and just be able to look at them. That's why I like the book so much, because it's got all like the original artwork and stuff and concept art and stuff. I, I, I just, I can love a lot of Mars Attacks. Me and you could talk about Mars Attacks for quite a long time. Maybe, maybe we will. Recently launched in the US as the latest add-on for the Saturn Netlink. This 200 buck box allows you to connect to the internet and fritter away your life browsing web pages, sending emails to the other X-Files anoraks, or best of all, playing special network versions of classic games like Sega Rally. It's currently only available in Japan and America, and whether it's released over here remains to be seen. And hey, maybe we would have talked about it online. We're using the Saturn Netlink if it have, have ever come out here in the UK. Yeah, we could have been like all the other X-Files anoraks. It was the modem attachment for the Sega Saturn games console. It gave you, it gave Saturn users access to the internet and access to email. It was released in October of 1996. We used that cartridge port on the top of the Saturn, the one we'd normally use for memory backup, RAM expansions, most commonly now action replay type devices because it helps you play backups, SD cards, imports, all that gubbins. I think it makes sense that it didn't come out over here because like, it didn't, didn't sell well in the states like i think it did well in japan because it was like a really cheap option to get yourself online and stuff but like in the states i guess there was just stronger competition like next generation in their april 97 issue just said that i mean they claim i don't know how substantiated this claim is that only one percent of saturn owners in america bought the netlink the pool of saturn owners is already quite small to then only sell it to one percent of those is an even smaller so yeah it makes complete sense why we didn't get it over here you can see obviously they recognized it wasn't taking off by how quickly they discounted it so launched costing two hundred dollars or four hundred dollars bundled with a sega saturn then in 1997 so less than a year after its launch they started selling it for 99 dollars with sega rally and virtual on bundled with it so you got the modem and two games. And it wasn't just uh, Virtual One you, you mentioned there. Sega Rally was another game you could play, uh, as well as Duke Nukem 3D Daytona. But for me, the key one to hear, I mean, outside of Duke Nukem 3D, maybe, Saturn Bomberman. Like, that's the game you want to be playing online. Bomberman, in any iteration, is always a good time, unless it's the Amiga version and you're stuck with a keyboard in a five-player type situation. Welcome back. Sonic the Hedgehog he used to be a cute, cuddly little platform character, but uh, years of excess and moral decay have reduced him into an ultra-violent beat-em-up. We have got the Brothers McCormack and the Brothers Gordon doing battle on it. 
Kirk, we had little Dino there tell us about his, uh, his first love there, Grace Wallace. Who was the first love of your life? Well, Doctor, it was actually your mum, uh, which, uh, in fact, reminds me I have something to tell you. <laughs> okay, and uh, how about some tips for our, uh, the wee guys? Okay, first tip is beat seven shades of sushi out your mates. That is the first tip. Second tip is when they're in the air, it's quite good to come in again, like before they actually come back down, go straight in with another couple of punches. That's a good thing. And thirdly, uh, just sort of use these uh, protective shields that you've got. Make sure that you use them because they're there and it's pointless not using them at all. Back to the challenge and Kirk is in the booth for this one and he gives a line that then gives one of my favourite Dominic reactions of Series 6. Like a real, I did not see that one coming. Hey, who was your first love? And he just looks at him and says, your mum. I'm amazed you didn't see it coming because it is such a 90s comeback. Dom is so taken aback by it. Particularly then because Kirk is following up by, you know, being like, oh, I'm actually your dad. Which really adds a lot of spice onto the Christmas quiz when Dom didn't know who it was. I just think it's a really, really fun reaction of Dom trying to recover himself so that he can then present the rest of this link. But Kirk not only has familial revelations, he also has some advice, which is beat seven shades of sushi out of your mates, go for air hits, so combo juggling is definitely a thing in this game, and use those protective shields. They're there to be used. Don't forget about them. Spoilers, a lot of the time they forget about them. I think we only see it once, and I would wager that was an accident. There is Tetsujin challenge level button mashing going on in this challenge. It starts with Lewis versus Daniel. Sonic takes first blood, Tails makes a bit of a comeback, and then Sonic takes the first round anyway. Yeah. There is no real gameplay notes. This is going to be a very quick challenge for us to work through because it's a slap fight. It's a series one and two slap fight. The amount of times I wrote down button mashing in my notes, and it very much speaks to the game itself. The, the way the challenge is set up is the McCormacks are always Sonic and the Gordons are always Tails. I think this fight is probably the most even of the two. It's quite back and forth at times, but then in the end, it, the McCormacks just, as Sonic, dominate and get this combo of offense in. Again, I would, I would wager probably by accident, but it is 1-0 McCormacks as we go into Craig versus Daryl, who also mash buttons. But this time, it's just Craig that wins quite easily there was a couple of special moves in there but daryl who lest we forget was pegged to be the weak link of this team does not look pleased that he lost no indeed and up last and with basically the pride of one family riding on this bout it's dean versus kyle and luke it's button mashing again dean is so excited to play this game though he has got and that's why i feel like a bit sad that he doesn't get to get two rounds on this i mean he probably got to play it loads you know throughout the day in practice and things like that but actually on the show itself when he gets one round of this because he's got the proper tongue sticking out level of child excited to play through this game he is well excited to mash those buttons. And the button mashing does pay off because it becomes 2-1. We're rolling around again. We're back to Lewis and Daniel for the fourth round. And all of a sudden, in the two other rounds that he sat out for, Daniel becomes amazing at this game and absolutely dominates the fight, pulls off loads of special moves and some combos and wins to tie it to all. So we back down to Craig and Daryl once again, the weak link of the Gordon family. Can he redeem himself? No, he gets pretty much handed and he does not look very pleased with it. But Craig 
is very pleased with himself and even gives a big old yeah when he wins. It was a freeze frame moment. It should have been just like the end of Flash Gordon where Flash jumps up and goes, yeah. And then we get some Queen. Brian Blessed is there in a loincloth and everyone has a great time. But no, Daryl just looks really pissed off, which is a shame because he did actually get first blood in this round. He did get the first couple of hits in. And unfortunately, Craig, while still button mashing, just worked out the right order to mash the buttons in just enough to get the job done cna beats sportswear the way it should be do you know luke there are people listening to this podcast that are gonna have to google what cna are (laughs) okay uh, commiserations to the gods congratulations to the mccormacks okay guys so with the first two bouts then that was uh, a lewis lewis won his one craig won his one it was two nil and then kyle you stepped in and restored some pride to the Gordons. What were your tactics then in that, in that fight of yours? I just do my normal thing. Your normal thing? Yeah. So you usually go around the punching blue hedgehogs? Yeah. Generally for a laugh. That's, uh, that's all right. Okay, so then uh, that, was, that was 2-1. I would have liked to draw attention to you, Craig, because you won both of your bouts. How did you do that? How was that? That I just... You're just cool, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. You're just, you're just a bit groovy? Yeah. Yeah? Is that a fair assumption? Yeah. And finally, yeah. Dean. Now, A, you lost your fight. You got beaten by Kyle, so I can forget about Grace Wallace now. That's <laughs> out the window. But I know that, obviously, you think I'm a very, very funny guy, but you think you can help me out with that? You've got a wee joke of your own, don't you? Do you want to tell us the joke? Yeah. Uh, what bear needs deodorant? I don't know. What bear needs deodorant? Pooh bear. Pooh bear! Fantastic, Dean. Thank you very much. You know, because you don't get a lot of this since the Dom and Mates era of this show when you interview little children who don't know what to say on camera. But Dom just goes straight to little Kyle about his tactics. What were his tactics, Ash? He just did his normal thing, which is apparently punching blue hedgehogs for a laugh. Just the normal things. Craig is highlighted for winning both of his rounds. Dom goes to him for comment doesn't get anything and so riffs on it and goes well it's just because you're just cool just just a bit groovy you can't quantify these things sometimes with words again just more awkward children not knowing what to say but dean has been prepping for this moment or he's clearly been prepped for this moment because he does have something to say i love this joke i've already told this joke once today yeah same here i, I told it to my wife when i came out because i watched this episode again today in, in preparation for the podcast i told it to my partner got a laugh how did you fare with your missus? She certainly reacted. Laugh is a strong word, but she could she could tell that it is a good joke. She just gave a nod of, hmm, hmm, good one. That was certainly a joke. All those words together do make for a punchline. But hey, guess what? It's enough to get Dean a job on the writing staff for the rest of the series. Also got to feel bad for the McCormacks here. They get one joystick between them. You tight feckers, give them three. Well, they can't. They thought they'd have an extra one left from later on in the episode. But hey, shenanigans. First up on the PlayStation Jet Moto, which is Japanese for wear leathers, which are colour coordinated with your bike. One special feature is the magnetic grapple. You can hook onto certain poles and spin around corners at amazingly high speeds. In one player mode, you have 10 different tracks to race around with 20 opponents at once. Firstly, it's got split screen mode. Now, we haven't seen an awful lot of that even on the best of the driving games like Wipeout 2097. And the graphics are incredibly well defined. 
Oh, it's, a, it's an awesome game, and I'm telling you, it's going to be the next biggest PlayStation release. First up in the reviews, we've got Jet Moto here on the PlayStation. This is something that I think translates better when you actually watch the episode as opposed to me trying to describe what happens here. But my favorite thing about this review is Ed Lomas talking about the big gimmick of this, which is that you've got this magnetic grapple that you can throw to certain points and it makes you whiz around a corner really, really fast. And Games Master Editing demonstrates this by showing someone use it and go straight into a wall and lose all momentum. That is not the first time that has been done during the editing of this. I was watching this and I was like, isn't that the same mechanic from one of the Batman games? There's the Batmobile levels and you use the grappling hook to slingshot around corners. And I never thought I'd see a game in the 32-bit era, see a gimmick from a movie tie-in and go, we're having that. I mean, it's clearly something that Rick likes because Rick is staking quite a lot of praise on this by saying that not only the graphics great, it's a lot of fun to play. It's got split screen mode. This is going to be the next big PlayStation release. Now, it's no wipeout. But it did get two sequels. It did get re-released multiple times, including for the PlayStation Portable and the PlayStation 3 via the PlayStation Network. It did prove quite popular and get generally good critical response. But we've already got two wipeouts. Gran Turismo's just around the corner. Is it the next big thing? Yeah, I think a lot of people have probably forgotten that this game exists. Like, I think had this come out when the PlayStation first came out, maybe time would be slightly kinder to it. But yeah, I think this is most people will not remember this title. And it's not like it's a bad game either. Like you mentioned there, it got, you know, fairly decent reviews from other people. Like, I mean, Games Master loved it more than other magazines did at the time. But, you know, it's got some interesting little mechanics in there. It's got, you know, a physics system that's so advanced that it can only be used on you, the human player, and all the other 19 racers have to have a different physics system to, to use around. And yeah, it's got some fun stuff in there. It's got a Twister Metal 2 connection in there because made by the same people. I think time would be kinder to this if it had been released at a different time. It's worth noting that the PC version, because this also came out for the PC, utilised 3DFX hardware. We talked a little while ago about the birth of the 3D graphics card for the PC. This is one of the early games that made use of that. It allowed for higher resolution graphics and visual enhancements like reflective water. So there we go. It, I mean, even though this is the PlayStation version, it wasn't actually the best version. Technically, the PC version could be considered to be superior. I was reading up that when they were making the game, one of their first ideas was that if you ring out effectively, that's it, you're out of the race. And they changed their minds on that because that was deemed not fun because it's not so then they were like okay fine it's a three strike and you're out rule you've got three ring outs and then you're out of the race and so they implemented that and it just meant that the results were wildly different at the end of each race there was just always a different number of competitors because the ai is so different you know between you humans and, and the computer players but in the end they were just like fine if you ring out you just get put back on the track like every other racer of this type because really that's the fun way to play this game yeah if you were playing split screen and you had a three strikes and you're out it could get very very dull very quickly but yeah this has got a bit of a connection to twisted metal 2 bit of a consultation zone ourselves here if you go to the two player challenge and at the choose battleground screen press up down right and r1 you'll be able to race through the swamp track from jet moto on twisted metal 2 
But Luke, will that make Twisted Metal 2 a better game? With Twisted Metal 2, it seems that even a Pishkim can get a sequel. Twisted Metal Tour is the sequel to Twisted Metal. Very, very similar in that you pick a ridiculous car with very, very big weapons and you drive around one of the interesting scenarios destroying your opponent. Yes, I'm afraid it is a little tad boring. Certainly when all you get to do is drive around a bit and shoot each other. It looks really great, but it just doesn't have the sustaining gameplay I think a game like this would need. For everyone else, yeah, but not for Games Master. They don't seem to like this at all. I mean, they do give it, you know, a 69. Nice. nice. But, I mean, everyone else is quite positive about this. Apart from Games Master, it would seem. like you know, They're like, it's just a bit boring. The one that came with the PlayStation 2 network adapter is the one I remember, because that was also one of the first games I could play online with the PlayStation 2 when it worked, which, at the time, it, it didn't work that well at all but in theory it worked well this game wasn't universally hated i mean it was one of sony's own brands we've actually got a tv series based on it coming out soon which i find a very confusing license to to go yes of all the sony properties that's the daddy that's the one that we are licensing for a tv show in particular because they'd announced a movie for Twisted Metal back in 2012 with uh, Brian Taylor directing. That was also because they were doing the, the PS3 version of Twi Twisted Metal was coming out as well. So it's going to be like this big, hey, Twisted Metal is back. This is our new big franchise that we're pushing. And then because sales of that weren't great, they canned the movie. Like Brian Taylor told Collider, it became like a tweener. Sony came out with a new version of the game, didn't really sell well. So they had this property that was kind of like this tweener. It was a movie that felt like it needed to be $50 million, but Sony didn't feel like that the fan base really merited that kind of movie. It really wanted to be more of a $15 million movie, but the nature of it was the set pieces would have made it just too big. He'd actually had conversations and had planned to cast Nick Cage in the role of Sweet Tooth, and he had these great, big grand plans for it to be like Mad Max Fury Rose in terms of like the big epic battles and, and set pieces and things like that. So you're right, here we are now, 10 years after that movie was announced and canned, no, it's now a TV series with Anthony Mackie and Stephanie Patrice, Thomas Hayden Church and Samoa Joe and Richard Cabal and Nev Campbell. It's good cast, but weird that Twisted Metal is becoming a TV show here in 20, well, probably 2023 by the time it comes out. Yeah, and it feels a little less Mad Max and a little more Death Race 2000 with perhaps notes of The Purge. Yes, exactly. I think that's probably more of an apt comparison. Certainly Death Race, yeah. I quite like Death Race 2000 and I quite like The Purge series. So, at a base level, Twisted Metal, the TV series, will prove more popular with me than this game did with Games Master. I never actually played the Twisted Metal games, like in situ, like in at the time, even when I got my PlayStation in the following years. But I was always drawn to it because, you know, Sweet Tooth is a very cool design. The cars are very mad and, you know, the John Doe car and things like that. So like, it's all, I was always drawn to its wackiness. So I think I probably will like the TV series and, so, and I like the cast a, a whole heck of a lot. So I'll probably get on board with it got Samojo. what more can you want the numbers don't lie and it's spell disaster for you at twisted metal will arnett's going to be doing his voice i think it's going to be a, a lot of fun last note i wanted to make on twisted metal 2 before we go into the ad break here because i was just i fell into the, the wikipedia well, was you know like fan base wikis for it and stuff 
Here are two characters that were introduced to Twisted Metal 2. Captain Rogers, which is fun because Anthony Mackie is going to be in uh, the Twisted Metal TV series, and Ken Masters. Really? <laughs> yeah. That got past legal. Apparently so. Apparently that's how little Capcom knew of Twisted Metal. They were too busy making FMV games. Okay, coming up in the second half of the show, Paul McKenna is our special guest. Or is he? Technically, he could just be making me think that he is. And any minute now, I'll take all my clothes off and start clucking like a chicken. Ponder the moral ramifications of this act during this commercial break. Once upon a time, a sorcerer's apprentice worked a very potent spell. He took the magic of all magic, mixed it with the Florida sun, and... Parades dazzled, fireworks flashed, smiles lit up, and world after sparkling world came to be. People came, and when they left, they carried the magic with them. Walt Disney World Resort in Florida, a world of holidays in one. Chris, never believe it. Don't tell me. I'm still in Belfast. Still in Inverness. Fishguard. Redruth. Bridlington. Somewhere down south. Chris, I'm in Scarborough. Hold on. We live in Scarborough. I know! No one covers more of the UK population than Cellnet. We let people who can't be together talk. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Yep. You can get all the vitamins.
vitamin C you need if you eat a balanced diet. But some people may need a bit more help. May I present Redoxon's slow release? Hundreds of microcapsules that gradually release their vitamin C over eight hours. Thank you. Like a human bow can shift 10,000 tons of coal. Can I dig it, mate? Who digs half a dozen pits after a bowl of wheat a bit? That's our shaft, you know. He's five pits down, ten along, straight past Bristol, going strong. You all right? Yo. Wait a minute. Once we've started you, there's no stopping you. Wake up! It's spring! Spring? I'm two months late for work. Don't panic! Don't panic! For breakfast in a hurry, try new Quaker Quick and Hearty. Just pop it in the microwave and you've got a warming Quaker oat breakfast in delicious honey brown mm. flavour. Toby, don't be an animal. What are you not doing up in January? January? Toby! <laughs> New Quick and Hearty from Quaker. It's unbearably quick. And hearty. I hate queues. So, what's this? Hey, can I go to the front? I've got to get my brass hand fixed. Excuse me, I couldn't get through there while you're reading your paper, could I? Can I come through at the front, please? No. I'll go on. I couldn't come through at the front, could I, please? It's a bit circular, the queue here, isn't it? Do you want to come down the front, anyone? It's easy. It's kills, 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 kills. Excuse me, you don't mind if I push in, do you? Yeah. You don't mind me pushing in, do you? You don't mind me going before you, do you? Yeah. 20 packs of chips, please. Yeah, I hate kills me, you know. Mm. Yeah. Would you like a chip? Oh, yes, please. Welcome back to Games Master. I'd just like to say that that last advert that was on in the break was the best advert I've ever done so. Now, I'm going to try and remember at this point here. In fact, this is almost an edit point for future Luke when he's putting this together to make sure that the last advert that I put in for the podcast commercial break is the best one of the lot, because that will then really feed into Dominic's intro line here. And note for future Ash, leave that little bit of audio from Luke in. So when Luke listens to my edit, he gets the audible reminder. But Remove this bit of me talking. Or we'll just keep all of that in and really just peel back the curtain on how this sausage gets made. Mate, no one needs to know how this sausage <laughs> gets made. Remember we said about the limited viewing angle of webcams. Anyway, let's get into our celebrity challenge. What are we playing, Games Master? My next challenge is on the formidable new Nintendo 64 game, Lost Dozer. A juggernaut carrying a nuclear weapon heading through a built-up area. My contestant's task will be to destroy any buildings in this path before it crashes into them, detonating the bomb. They'll use various methods of transport to complete this challenge. First, a train, and then a buggy, which must be used to destroy the buildings by constant damage. One tip for my contestant, use the hill at the side of the complex to launch yourself and destroy buildings more quickly. That's my briefing over. It's a tough challenge, 
but somebody's got to do it. Oh, blast call on the N64. I am here for this. We even get Games Master calling it by its original name of Blast Dozer, which is really cool. I am fully on board for this. Spoilers, it ends up not being that great of a challenge. But it is fun to see Blast Core here. Especially because this is pre-release Blast Core. This game is not due out for another three months. In fact, more than that, because this would have been filmed in 1996. It's certainly pre-football season, so I think this is probably July. How early was this version of the game? I mean, this is the friendship with Rare coming through a little bit, I think. Yeah. Because... This game is so far from complete. As I say, it's, it's not released until March of 1997 in Japan. It's one of the coolest things about Games Master, about how they were able to get these games that early. And it's the sort of thing that I think Dominic then is very proud of when it comes to the latter series of Games Master. It was Rare's first game for the N64 as well. And I owned this and I loved this game. I, I thought it was so, so cool. Spoilers for when we get to Dom talking to Paul McKenna in a bit. But he says, oh, I've never played a game like this. And it's like, no, mate, you haven't. Because there's never been a game quite like this. This game is really quite unique. This game is just described on Wikipedia as an action game. And that's because what the hell else genre can you give to it? I don't think I've played Blast Core. I certainly didn't in situ because my friend didn't have a copy of it. And he was the only person I knew that had an N64, so I definitely didn't play it at the time. Might have played it uh, during my university years, but I don't particularly recall. But my favorite thing about this and kind of what speaks to, you know, what you were just saying then about how unique it is, Games Master explains what the challenge is and it shows you what the challenge is that you're supposed to do. But it's still like just writing it down. And if you're going into this completely blind, not knowing anything about Blast Core, it doesn't look like they're playing the game right. It says a lot for the originality of this game that even now, back when they uh, released the uh, Rare Replay collection in 2015, Blast Core was on there and it was highlighted as one of the standout games because still original to this day. There still isn't much that compares to it, even though the controls can be a bit janky in the modern day. And like so many Nintendo 64 games, the graphics haven't aged the best. The textures in particular struggle. But it is still a standout title. It's still a fun title to play. And if you've got an Xbox, if you've got Game Pass, you can just go out there and grab the Rare Replay and play it now. So please welcome tonight's special guest, television's premier hypnotic light entertainer, Mr. Paul McKenna. Welcome to the show, sir. Dominic. Now, uh... Mr. McKenna, I'm sure we have a lot of people watching themselves would like to be hypnotists. What, uh, how do you become a hypnotist? Well, the way I did it was went and found one of those dusty old books, you know, the leather-bound types, opened uh -huh. it, read all the old ancient secrets and just went out and practised it. It's like anything in life, if you practise it, you can get better at it. Apart from presenting this show, because it's taken me five series and I'm still woefully inept. But keep at it though. Thank you very much. That's advice from our light entertainment legend there. <laughs> Um, now, you've also, you've also got the, the tapes that you do that, that people listen to themselves, which can uh, help them to sleep, help them to lose weight and stuff like that. Is there one which could help me get more hair? 
Well, if there was, I would have used it as well, being a little follically challenged. Very, very good point. Although you actually try to grow it a bit longer. I, I suspect you maybe try and flatten it down now again, Paul. Well, yeah, I'd be on to a full Bobby Charlton. I'll, <laughs> I'll be combing it up from me back in a few years. <laughs> it's been a few years. I can see it stuck down a little bit there. No, just, that's just a joke. Fine head of hair, fine head of hair. Because I can't talk about hair. Now, um, we've, uh, we've made a promise yeah. that you're not going to hypnotise me. Well, after what you just said about my hair, actually, I'm not so sure if I... No, of course, no, I, I won't... Because I am worried about stuff, so you promise. Uh, yeah, yeah. Definitely not going to me. That's fine. And finally, the, uh, the challenge itself. You've had a couple of practice goes at it. How confident do you feel? <laughs> Very unconfident. I'm terrible. I, I, I've never played this kind of game before. Uh -huh. I've only ever played the arcade ones, you know, the, the shoot-em-ups and the racer ones, but not this kind of game. Right. And you notice, I don't know if you noticed, when he was saying that, I was trying not to look directly into Mr. McKenna's eyes, just in case. Yeah. There, okay. And our guest this week, as we mentioned earlier in the show, is Paul McKenna. When I was watching this episode, uh, my wife walked into the room and was one of those times where she was like, is that Paul McKenna? There's only a handful of times where she's really reacted to who the celebrity is. I think that says a lot for, for Mr. McKenna here. And it's appropriate that we're in Atlantis because he's gone for a real Indiana Jones look in this. He's wearing kind of an indie style outfit in the fate of Atlantis. He is a man as well. I mean, they talk about uh, him losing his hair in the same way that Dominic is, and they kind of talk a lot about it. Like, he even has that line where it's like, I'm going to have to start combing my hair from the back, which I can appreciate because I would have had to do the exact same thing before I shaved or ball. He carries himself as a very stylish man. Like, he's picked the right glasses, he's styled his hair a very good way, he's got the right amount of stubble, and yeah, he's got a cool Indiana Jones look about him. He's got himself well put together. You can see why he is a light entertainment legend. I do like how they do call him that, because let's be honest, we mostly know Paul McKenna at that point in time as a hypnotist. There's a lot of other names that are attached to him. If you just go look at his own Wikipedia page, which I feel he may have had a hand in himself, you've got behavioural scientist, a broadcaster, author, visionary, dreamweaver, plus hypnotist. Plus hypnotist. That's mainly what you remember him for, is you remember him because he did the kind of the hypnotism gimmick shows yeah. to a degree. There's a lot about him that should kind of like set me off the same way Yuri Geller did. Not quite to the same scale, but that should also upset me. But the fact he's willing to have a laugh at himself immediately makes me go, he's not all bad. The difference between the two of them, I guess, is that Yuri Geller went onto this show and they did a big trick to show that he really can read people's minds and he does have telepathy powers that were given to him by aliens. Whereas Paul McKenna has gone to this show and is taking part in a joke. It is a joke that is at Dom's expense, but it's just, it's a joke that works and is a light entertainment bit of fluff. And I think it makes so much better. He's so personable during this little chat with Dominic Diamond. He feels like he's a fan of the show, or at the very least, is like very close with with Dominic Diamond and stuff, or is you know at least you know good, good had good chats with him and stuff. I think he's really, really great in this episode. I've got very little bad things to say about him, and I really thought, like you, that I was going to go onto his Wikipedia page and there was going to be a list of controversies, and there isn't. There's just stuff about his research stuff about the self-help that he's done, a list of his published work, some of his educational bits and bobs, and then his personal life where he got married. And like, that's kind of it. And just a bunch of various like celebrities. And we're not talking about skeezy celebrities. We're talking about people that are mostly not skeezy. David Williams is in there. 
Let's move on from that one. But Stephen Fry, Rob Bryden, Daryl Hannah, they've all kind of gone on record and said, no, he really helped with either stage fright or fear of flying or weight loss in the case of Stephen Fry. He all helped them in some way that they considered to be tangible. And with his research, specializes in working with PTSD, severe trauma, pain control. He's got a background as an entertainer and he was already a broadcaster and entertainer when he became interested in hypnosis and other things, but it's clearly led him to a different calling in life. And he's a lot of fun here. He's there for a laugh. And also, I really dig the style, the kind of the slight scruffiness in the in the kind of like the shit in the stubble and the Indiana Jones look. I look at it and I'm like, you did this deliberately. This feels very, very calculated. He was there to look cool. I'm also slightly envious of how Paul McKenna got his start in this industry, which is that at the age of 16, he was the DJ of Radio Top Shop. Wow. I fucking love radio stations in clothing stores or in like Superdrug or things like that. Genuinely is the sort of thing I'll be like, oh, that'd be a really fun gig to have. Because it's the easiest bit of radio, but it's also, it's still radio. And I would think it'd just be, there's a lot of fun to be had with that. Hospital radio. So, you know, people who get their start in the hospital radio be like, oh, it's the most fun I've ever had doing the job. I mean, shop radio, it's like hospital radio, but with a better mortality rate. Depends on which top shops you go into, I guess. He's just having a laugh here. Like him and Dom have got a really good rapport. How do you get good at hypnosis? Well, it's like anything you do in life. The more you do it, the better you'll become. Dom, instantly, bang, I'm crap at my job. Have you got anything about hair growth? You know, maybe I would have used it myself because I would have needed it too. And Dob's like, nope, my hair is worse than yours. Actually, no, I think your hair is a bit shitter than mine. And Paul's instantly on that being like, well, I wasn't going to hypnotize you, but now you start to make fun of my hair. So maybe I will. And then just looks down the camera, gives a cheeky little wink. He's in on it. Everyone's in on it. It's a bloody good time. We can all see the gag coming a mile away, but it doesn't spoil the pudding when it arrives. No, and it's why I think they put him on Blast Core because it was probably a challenge that very few people were going to complete. And you do want to put him on a challenge that he can fail, but can fail convincingly at. Like, you don't want to put him on a challenge where he just fails on purpose. You want to put him on a challenge that probably no one would have done. But you know what? The gags and the hits just keep on coming, because I think Rick's in fine form in this little booth segment as well. Okay, once again, making me look particularly good in the fashion stakes is Rick Henderson. Rick... Have you ever been hypnotised? Well, I've been regressed back to a five-year-old once, and I don't think I've ever actually recovered. Right. Good gag, though. No, it wasn't. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, have you got any tips for Mr McKenna on this game? What's what's going to be the crucial tip you could give him? Well, this is an extraordinarily tough game. This game is so hard, it's uncanny, but it's the mastery of the... It's uncanny. (laughs) It's the mastery of the turbo button, Mm -hmm. in this case. Um, If you want to turn quicker and when you get in the buggy, you have to tap lightly on the turbo button. If you want to slam into the building to break them down, turbo it all the way. Yeah, he was once regressed back to a five-year-old. He's not sure he's ever recovered. And Dom's like, it was a good gag though, wasn't it? And Rick's like, no. Nope. (laughs) No, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. (laughs) Tips for Mr McKenna? Rick says, it's so hard, it's uncanny. And so's the game. You need to master the turbo button, tap it to turn tightly, hold it down to slam that building. And a reminder, the convoy needs to get from A to B unimpeded. I mean, that's a simple goal, Luke. How could you ever lose track of that? If you heard Games Master's intro there, he said, you've got to do this by two modes of transport. First by train, then by buggy. The train does nothing. 
train gets you to the start of the level. Yeah, the, the train is effectively the goggles that Radioactive Man wears. It gets to a stop, you get off the train, then you get into the buggy, then you drive down to where the level is. He smashes up a building, and I guess just misses that there was a pylon behind him, because on the HUD is just flashing up, collision imminent, collision imminent, collision imminent. This little screen pops up with the guy driving the convoy in it, and he's like, oh my god, we're gonna die! (laughs) And McKenna's just like, he's riling up and he's taking down other things, and then they're like, there's something that he has missed. And he drives back and sees the pylon, but in the process of driving into that pylon, he also drives into the convoy itself and blows the whole thing up and loses the challenge in quite spectacular fashion. It's so beautiful because he's actually doing such a good job of demolishing the buildings. And then they're like, the pylon, Paul, there are additional pylons. And so he has to spin around and he takes it down beautifully, but it's just the fact he completely forgets to turn. And so <laughs> he followed the advice that Rick gave. He, he mashed that turbo button. He doesn't just clip the convoy. It's full animal house ramming speed kind of... Boom. The entire country blows up. But Paul is laughing. Yeah, he, he's having a laugh with it. And he walks up to Dom and he's like, you really relished that word fail a bit too much there, didn't you? Well, I think you relish that word failed just a little too much, Dominic. It does trip more easily off the tongue than triumph, Mr. McKenna. Basically, you drove your car into your own troop carrier. Now, that basically makes it one of the most appalling displays of gameplay I've ever seen on the show. You think it was that bad? I thought it was absolutely atrocious. You sure? I have never seen a display of games playing worse than that. It was so brilliant. Thank you. You cope with it admirably. I mean, was it difficult for you at all? You seemed to breeze through it. Yeah, just, you know, natural talent, really. Are you good at a lot of games? Yeah, of course. You know, I'm uh, considered one of the best in the world. And, oh, by the way, can I have that 20 quid you owe me as well? Yeah. Oh, thanks. Thanks very much, mate. Paul, that was dismal. That was probably one of the worst bits of gaming that we've ever seen the show. Never had anything worse. A child of three could do, and boom, finger snap. Paul hypnotizes him and then Dom is just like, no, actually it was brilliant. What a natural talent you were. And boom, finger snap. It's like, I also need that 20 quid that you owe me. And Dom's like, Dom's performance like, oh yeah, no, cool. Yeah, here's that 20 quid. Yeah. So Paul gets his ego stroked. He gets 20 quid off Dominic Diamond. And despite losing, he gets a Games Master Golden Joystick. So this is our first instance on the show where a loser has been awarded the joystick and not by a celebrity just being like, oh, just you have it instead because I don't want this cluttering up my house. This is, but it's all part of the gag. I think the gag is very, very funny. I think that everyone's performance in all of this is just a lot of fun, particularly because Dom knows this isn't the most appalling level of games play that we've seen on this show. Bear Van Beers was on the show not that long ago. McKenna made a mistake. Bear, as lovely as she was, was just a car wreck all the way through. She was him running into that convoy, but as a whole challenge. She was three minutes of driving into a nuclear (laughs) convoy. But I love that Paul still gets the joystick and he gets the kisses from the mermaids and everything while Dominic Diamond's like, it's one of the best games playing performances we've ever seen on this show. It's really, really good. It's good light entertainment. And Paul McKenna's taking a page out of the Dave Perry playbook when he says, I'm one of the best games players in the world. (laughs) It's cold, it's overcast, it's wet, but I'm still wearing shades because we're in Los Angeles at the Jurassic Park ride. 
technically the most advanced ride in the history of the world. Oh yes, if you want top theme park action, you've got to come to Universal Studios, especially if Channel 4 are paying for you. Jurassic Park has been packing them in all summer, just as well for Universal because they spent over three years on a whopping 110 million bucks to recreate the world of the dinosaurs. The ride is rounded off by the biggest water drop ever, which seems to have a devastating effect on the vocabulary of the punters. Oh wow, that's awesome. This might end up being my favourite feature of Series 6 as well. This feature's great. This feature is great. I love this feature because I've been to Universal Studios multiple times. I've been on Jurassic Park The Ride multiple times. I love the films. I don't love all the films, but I love the films as an overall series. But Jurassic Park The Ride, it never gets old. I know they've reinvented it now, but even that original version of the ride, I could go on it three times in a day. And when you do go over there in February, it's quite easy to go on it three times in a day because the park is bloody quiet. But it's just so much fun. So I've never been on this version. Obviously, it's the same one wherever, but I've, I've only been on the one in Florida when they opened up in Islands of Adventure. So that must have been when I went in 2000, because I don't think it was there in 98. Because I loved Jurassic Park so much, I was so excited to go on the ride. And it's incredible. It took them years to make this ride. Dom even says like it took them three years. It cost $110 million to make this ride. That is more than it cost to make the movie. But it has paid dividends for them because it has been one of the most celebrated rides Universal Studios have ever put on. And still to this day, like you mentioned, it's been rebranded to Jurassic World The Ride. But the original version of Jurassic Park The Ride up until 2018 was one of the most attended attractions and applauded and critically acclaimed rides that, that Universal have had. So their first water ride and stuff. It's awesome. And it's so great to see this here because you get to see so much of the ride in this feature and interviews with the people that were behind it as well. This is like the Waterworld feature we had in Series 5 that I just I really, really dug this. Universal Studio, they don't have quite the scope and scale of your Disney's, but they do these big kind of theatrical, particularly outdoor spectacles really well because the majority of this ride is outdoors. The, the last kind of bit, the, the bit that is almost a dark ride, the ascent before you get to the massive drop, that's indoors. And it's so crazy because obviously there was Jurassic Park and then there was a major refurbishment for Jurassic World. But the basic structure of rivery bit around, big slope, and then big drop, it remains the same. It's just the skinning that has changed. And I've seen clips of the new redone Jurassic World one. And I'll be honest, you know, uh, same as a lot of the rides where they've just overly used kind of like screens and projections. But it's still got the same kind of charm. And they've done some cool water effects in the ascent and in the way that it's done. Even if they continue to drive the Jurassic Park franchise into the ground, much like the Waterworld experience, I think Jurassic Park The Ride will be around for a good decade or more to come. Because the beauty of the Jurassic Park ride is the animatronics. And yeah. because it feels then you're like you're going through the movie. When they were developing this ride, Spielberg's big venture for this. So the, I mean, the story of the ride, a lot like the movie, is it was in development before the book came out. Like Amblin and Universal had acquired the rights to the movie before Crichton's book was published. And even before Crichton's book was published, Spielberg went to Universal and said, you should make this a theme park ride. 
not based on my movie, but based on Crichton's book. So they took the river sequence from Crichton's book and that serves as the basis for this because that river sequence ends up not being in the movie, which actually works out better for them because they didn't want to try and recreate something from the movie because they'll never do it as good as Spielberg did it on film. Like they wanted to do something with the Jeeps because the Jeeps were going to be such a big part in the movie. But then we're like, no, let's let's do the river rapids bit because that separates us from the movie, but still makes it feel like you're going to Jurassic Park in, in Costa Rica. Spielberg said that his big vision for this, that it would be full of life-size, two-scale animatronic dinosaurs. But that will never happen because it's too big sky thinking. It's too expensive and it will never work that way. So they started working with the people behind T2 to do special effects versions. Things will be projected onto screens and whatnot. But then when the movie came out and people really liked the animatronics of the movie and how, how real they felt they went back to plan A and did them as animatronics. And I think that is the magic of the ride. It's the same way the King Kong ride at Universal, the magic of that, the Jaws ride, the magic of it is that it's a physical thing that is coming out in front of you. You feel like you are in the movie. And I think that is lost when you do it in a digital scape instead and you start projecting things. I think it loses something. Deep within your psyche, there are fears. Fears you've never known until now. Carnophobia. Fear of being eaten alive. Jurassic Park. The Rock. Only at Universal Studios Hollywood. I'm just actually watching a run-through of the latest Jurassic World ride. And obviously there's a lot, they do a lot with the Indominus Rex and and all that kind of stuff. I will say that the underwater kind of bit that you go through where you're kind of seeing a shark getting bitten in half and stuff like that, even though it's on screens and it's made to look like kind of an aquarium tank, the technology they've used, it looks really good. But then we're outside again and we've still actually got all the animatronics. They are still there. Some of them have been reworked. To be honest, they'd aged quite badly just because of perishing of the materials. But we're now... I'm looking at this run-through and we've just kind of gone through the first bit where you get some wet jets from outside. We're going past the Velociraptor pen. We've got the Indominus Rex pad and that's been broken open. We've got some of the um, the spheres mm-hmm. from Jurassic World. That's right, yeah. They replaced like the boats and stuff, yeah. Yeah, they're on the side and the compies are now eating something around that. And basically the Indominus Rex has escaped and that's the big kind of danger and there's screens coming up. And so I still love that we do get... It would have been too easy for them to go full like screens and dark rides like they've done with the Transformers one, which is still a really fun experience. But I would appreciate more animatronics. But watching this, and oh, hey, there's some Chris Pratt getting ready to voice Mario. This still feels like Jurassic Park the ride. It just looks a lot shinier. Also, it's in 4K, the version that I'm watching, which is quite surreal to see it looking this realistic. Yeah, it's just there to give it the the new updated... Because, you know, Jurassic Park is an old film at this point, whereas Jurassic World is the brand new thing. Like, it completely makes sense that Universal Studios are rebranding and rebadging some of their older rides of movies from the past with movies from the present because you're trying to appeal to the younger generation so yeah that completely makes sense it, I, i'm glad there's still the animatronics there and actually like when you sort of watch it through you mentioned the, the sphere pod 
that is essentially just the moment in the ride when you see one of the abandoned riverboats that are there and mm. there's like a dilophosaur in there that's eating a poncho as a fun little easter egg there's a little mickey mouse hat that's like floating yeah. in the water they did like a few little easter egg things bits and bobs around there uh, you know john hammond is is in the he's the guy in the talking screens and stuff while you're queuing up as played by richard Attenborough again it does still feel like the same ride just a newer shinier version of it and that's great because it is tremendously fun it is a wickedly good ride it was my favorite when i was there and i'm just watching now the bit that's inside the t-rex enclosure and there are some amazing new animatronics in there and there's actually a couple of bits involving velociraptors where i've just watched the loop of it and i can't tell if that's animatronic or kind of a pepper's ghost projection thing Mm. because the motion is so smooth but if I can't tell that on a 4K video, that means they've done their job. Just wouldn't have been now. That's amazing. Because I think it's a projection, but also the animatronics are so good elsewhere that it could well just be that. But here we are. We're talking about Jurassic World, the ride now. This is obviously on Jurassic Park, the ride then. It was at the time one of the most advanced rides in the history of the world. And quite rightly, if you're going to enjoy it, enjoy it at the expense of Channel 4. I love that they get some really good behind-the-scenes footage of them like making the drop and testing out the drop that they did over in the Netherlands where we have this interview. Although Dom, chap that he's talking to, says that he's Mark Green from ER, but he looks nothing like Mark Green from ER. I'm sorry, Dom, you look more like Mark Green from ER than this lad does. I do love as well, and it's something you will have to go and watch the episode to get is we've got lots of clips from the kind of the premiere of the ride and the various electronic press kits that went with it. So we get clips of Steven Spielberg on the ride. Spoilers, he stopped and got off the ride before it went through because he didn't want to get wet and he was a bit scared. But also you see Jeff Goldblum, who did go on the entire ride and he was like, amazing. Then you get David Hasselhoff, who apparently has an opinion worth filming. Ariana Richards, like the the, the kids were there as well for the opening with uh, Joseph Mazzallo and things like that. It's, it's They did a big deal for this. This is such a cool feature to have and just such a joy to see. And I love that footage of them testing the water drop, which involves them having to crane one of the cars in and then they have to walk all the way up the top. Can you imagine the reset on that? It's like, I think we need to go again. Fine. You start climbing the stairs. We'll start bringing the crane around and we'll meet you at the top. Also, that must be absolutely terrifying as well. In that version of it, it just feels very, very scary. And so it was time for me to cheat death once again. But there was a slight fashion problem to clean up first. Hi, hi, poncho girl. What's, what's the story here? What's this for? It's an emergency poncho and it's so you won't get wet. Right. You don't have them in black, do you? No black. I can't wear yellow. The fashion police will arrest me in Britain. I don't think so. You look handsome. I, I don't need them. I won't get wet. Okay, I'm have too fun. Cool. When I went on this ride in 2000s, my dad doesn't really like theme park rides. He went on them because me and my brother went on them, right? Like, so he came on because we were enjoying ourselves. He was like, cool, I'll do the rides and stuff. But he didn't really enjoy them much. And he really didn't like any of the ones that dropped. So did not like Splash Mountain in Disney World. Did not like Doctor Doom's death drop whatsoever in Islands of Adventure. So when we went to do the Jurassic Park one, bear in mind my dad loved Jurassic Park and he loved the book. So he did want to at least experience the ride somewhat he did not want to get soaking wet on this day because we were there in december and he did not want to get soaking wet we asked the poncho girl do we need the ponchos 
realistically, how wet are we going to get from this ride? And she said, do you know what? You don't get that wet at all. It's Splash Mountain wet, maybe slightly less. Fucking bullshit that lady gave us because we got soaked through because it creates a 40-foot tidal wave over you when you hit the bottom. We were as drenched as Dom is at the end of this. I've literally lived the experience that Dom McDiamond has in this feature. I think the first time I went on the ride, so that would be maybe 2005, 2006, somewhere around there, I did have a poncho. And then when I went on it again 10 years later, I didn't. And in fact, I think on that 2005 day, I was only wearing a poncho on the first trip round, but then I lent it to someone else because it was like a group of us going out from a convention and I didn't have it back. I mean, I got wet, but also it was LA. And even though it was February, it was LA. It's still kind of warm. So I just dried out and made sure my electronics were tucked away in a waterproof bag or a carrier bag or something. Uh, one last note as well uh, of the, the little Easter eggs and stuff. Love this little touch. As the ride is finishing up, you do the big drop and you're just going round. There's one last big sort of Dilophosaurus that pops up and spits water out out of you. But as you go on that final corner, if you just look up to your left, you can see the can of shaving cream that Dennis mm. Nedry was trying to stay yeah. or trying to use. And it's just laying there. It's a lovely little detail. It's the care and attention that makes it. If you're going anywhere near a Universal Studios, even though it's been rebranded Jurassic World and you may not like the Jurassic World movies, don't sleep on this one. Give it a shot. I think the first Jurassic World is very, very good. I think its sequels are very, very bad. Last note on this before we go back to the studio. Dom does get off the ride. And he goes around it at least twice because the camera operator that's on the ride with him for the on-ride footage is not there when they get the footage of him getting off. He gets off the ride and he's like, I was wrong, I did get soaking wet, but at least I'm cool. And then he appears to go arse over tea kettle. And I part of me thinks, oh, he's pratfalling. But also, man, he violently drops out of shot to the point where I think he really did fall over. Yeah, you're right. Like This is clearly the second time he's gone round. So he knows how soaking wet he's going to get on the second run round of it. And then it was just like, oh, wouldn't it be really funny if I then do this at the end? But yeah, you're right. He throws himself to the floor. Maybe he planned to fall over, but actually the level of sog on the deck and on his shoes meant that he didn't just stumble, he went full faceplant. Okay, before we all go tonight, I would like to thank Mr. Paul McKenna again, not only for coming on the show, but also being such a fantastic games player. And uh, while you think about that, I'll leave you with another thought. If the family is the centre of 20th century culture, why do mine keep moving house without telling me? Good night. So why does Dom's family keep moving without telling him? I don't really know. He seems like a nice enough lad. Although it's a joke he's still using 25 years later because he used it in the Q&A. I know. But I think that's going to do it for this episode. Uh, Ash, as episode 15, we are nearing the end of series six. There's only, what, three episodes left now? 
16, 17, and 18. So what did you make of this one as we near our end? The first challenge, despite being on a relatively cutting-edge game, is a real, real throwback. And by that, I mean fairly wonky gameplay and kids that don't quite know what to say on a microphone. But then we get to a new section, which is quite exciting. There's talks about new technology, new generations of gaming hardware. And then we have this really great celebrity challenge, which is so fun, even though the gameplay is shash. But this is not only a new game, this is a game that is actually some six months or more away from completion. Then we have the reviews. Quite fun. Maybe kind of like being overly harsh on one game and maybe being overly kind on the other. And then we get this feature. I'm having difficulty separating the fun I had talking about this episode from the episode itself. Because I think it's a good episode. I think it is a perfectly solid episode. And we've certainly had way worse episodes at this point in previous series. We've had this a bit in series six where it's an episode of two halves. But previously that has been the first half was very good and the second half was bad. And actually I think this time it's the other way around. Not to say that the first half is bad, but the first half is okay games playing on an okay game with series one and two kids awkwardness some fine news items and the reviews but the second half so much fun because it's all the paul mckenna stuff and then this awesome feature with jurassic park like that final half is like in the 90s levels of great uh, episodes of, of games master but the first half is it's okay it's solid it's a perfectly fine little run we got to talk about Mars Attacks. That is actually the highlight of the first half. Exactly. Is, is the Mars Attacks feature because it's not just Dominic going, here's a new movie coming out. It's Dominic going, I've seen this movie. It's really bloody good. It's really good. You go out and you've seen it. He probably saw it when he was there doing the Jurassic Park thing. Absolutely. He's like, I've seen it and it's fab. You should go and watch it. But I, again, that is, we've got to separate out the enjoyment that we had talking about it as opposed to the episode itself. I actually think the Mars Attacks little feature is a really solid bit of news because it's building hype for a new film coming out. And even at this point in time, in present day, looking at a YouTube copy of a VHS rip of a Channel 4 broadcast, Mars Attacks looks great. Yeah. It looks absolutely stunning. And I it looks as stunning now as it did then. So my score-wise... I was thinking flat 90, and I was thinking of bumping it down to 89, but I'm wondering if that's too harsh. So I might just stick at 90. I'm going to stick with 90 for, for, for this one, I think. I'm going with 92. I get, yeah, so we're around the same sort of ballpark. I, I think it is a very, very fun episode. The, the, the second half is what makes this episode for me. First half is perfectly fine episode 15 affair. Uh, second half's great. I think after the ad break, it's a great, great episode. You can tell how good the second half was because we dropped the smut. We weren't <laughs> even aiming for being lewd, but it just happened at the beginning. And then we just started nerding out about Mars Attacks and Jurassic Park and how nice Paul McKenna appeared to be and wasn't that funny. Just such a, a, such a joy of an episode to discuss. And I think that's going to wrap it up for this episode. Thank you all so much for listening. You all rule. You can check us out on social media, on Twitter at underconsolepod, on Instagram at under.console, and you can send us an email with your Series 6 feedback to feedback at underconsultation.com. And if you want to chat with us in real time, chat with other listeners, people that have actually appeared on the podcast and on Games Master itself, 
about games, about Games Master, about pop culture, past and present, about whether Basil makes you poo. And yes, that is irrelevant to a conversation that's happening there right now. You can join our Discord, details of which can be found in the show notes or on our social media. And if you want to support this podcast monetarily, you can do so over at patreon.com forward slash underconsolepod, where you'll get access to UCP Extra, which is now back in fine form, where we take classic shows from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s and apply this show format to them and our monthly community show, Under Console Nation. And if you back us at the £5 level, you'll get next week's episode one week early and ad-free. And Ash, if they back us at the £10 level, do they get a little bit extra? At the £10 level, they get a golden joystick waggler mug, which we fill with sweeties, with retro trading cards, with badges and stickers, which we load into a trebuchet and just launch onto the horizon on the hope that it lands just in front of your door. And a shout out to those £10 backers, Xanderthal, William Tom, The Amazing Cliff, Super Sexy David Fisher, Simon, Selena, Sean, Richard, Reese, Nick, Misha, Matty, Boom, Mark, Link, Kevin, Jamie, Ian, I Am Cheadle, Harriet, Manga Girl, Gordon Dempster, Gordon Brands, David Palmer, Critty Two Sticks, Arcadia, Wild Bill, Andrew, Adam, and Andy. Thank you all so much for listening. We will see you in seven days time for episode 16 of series six. Take care, everyone. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.